We'll hear argument next in case 07901, Oregon versus ICE. Ms. Williams. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The fact-finding at issue in this case is significantly different than the fact-finding at issue in this Court's recent Sixth Amendment cases, in which the Court struck down changes in sentencing practice that had the effect of removing fact-finding from the province of the jury. In those cases, the change in practice meant that a defendant could be convicted by the jury for one offense, and then based on non-jury fact-finding, the defendant could be sentenced for what appeared to be an aggravated, uh, more serious offense, without the jury having made all the factual determinations necessary for that more serious offense. That doesn't happen in this case. In this case, the jury convicted Mr. Ice of six counts, and the sentence imposed on each of those six convictions satisfies the Apprendi rule. There's no additional jury fact-finding that alters, or or non-jury fact-finding, excuse me, that alters a specific sentence for one of the convictions. Instead, what the fact-finding in this case does is to significantly restrain the judge's ability to decide how to administer those multiple sentences for the multiple convictions. Well, but it, 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 uh, by reason of, of the unusual law at issue here, and I, I think it's unusual, I don't, I'm, not, I'm unaware of any other state that has one, uh, the, the sentences, the, the, the defendant has an entitlement to have the sentences run concurrently unless a certain additional fact exists. And that additional fact is to be found by the judge rather than by the jury, so that if you take seriously what uh, what we have said in prior cases, namely that any any fact which uh, has the effect of lengthening the the sentence to which the defendant is in, is entitled uh, must be found by the jury. If you take that seriously, I don't see why it doesn't apply here. Justice Scalia, first on the, the point in terms of how unique this statute is, there are other states that have similar uh, requirements, that there is initially a presumption that multiple sentences will be concurrent unless there is additional non-jury fact-finding that authorizes the judge to impose consecutive sentences. So it, it's not entirely... How many others do you, do you know? I... It's difficult, actually, to come up with an exact count, and the numbers vary when you look at how other courts have, have sort of combined cases to perhaps as many as 13, but uh, as, as different states have sort of changed their practice, some of those have fallen away. But it's clear that there's a, uh, at least a minority of states that have this kind of limitation on what is otherwise inherent or discretionary authority of the judge to decide how to administer these multiple sentences. But the, the difference is that what this Court has, has been addressing in the Apprendi line of cases has always been a specific sentence imposed on a specific conviction. And what the Oregon Supreme Court did was to expand that to say that in addition to the statutory maximum that this Court described in Blakely, there is in effect a second statutory maximum that you must consider when there are multiple sentences being imposed for multiple convictions. And that's the total period of incarceration that the defendant will serve with and without the additional fact-finding. But, you know, th- this fact can, can turn out to be the most significant fact for, for, for the defendant. I mean, it, it could uh, lengthen his sentence enormously. It, it's more important than many of the other facts that, that, that we leave to the jury. 
Yes, Your Honor. And in this case, for example, the, the additional fact-finding extends the total duration of the, the, the Mr. Ice's period of incarceration from 90 months to 340 months. But what is, is significant is that, as this Court said in Blakely, the Sixth Amendment is a reservation of jury power. It's not a limitation on judicial power, and I would submit it's not a limitation on legislative power, except to the extent that that exercise of power removes something from the province of the jury. Historically, it's undisputed that the judge made this decision about how multiple sentences would be administered. Well, but you, you could say the same about uh, sentencing in general, and, 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 and we held that the Sixth Amendment does impose a limitation upon judicial power, where at least uh, there is an entitlement by law to a certain lower sentence. And, and there we said uh, you can't leave it to the judge to decide whether the facts that, that trigger that law uh, exist or not. But I think what's important is the, the foundation for that that holding and, and the foundation for the Apprendi rule. It wasn't simply that fact-finding in general that exposes a defendant to a harsher punishment is something that should would be better served by, by having it done by the jury. It was that because of the changes in, uh, in, in sentencing practices, because states and Congress had been taking what traditionally had been elements of an offense and relabeling them as something else, as sentencing factors, that the jury was no longer finding what traditionally it would have found for each conviction. It was no longer finding what would have been each element of an offense. So what the rule does is it provides a bright-line way of of testing what is (laughs) the functional equivalent of an element for a specific offense that would have been within the province of the jury and therefore that can't be removed without violating the Sixth Amendment. The rule does bear bear on culpability, uh, and culpability sounds like part of the definition of, of, an, of an offense or a more serious offense. Yes, Your Honor. And, and I think the Oregon Supreme Court viewed this case as in terms of that it may have simply been happenstance that the Court was looking only at single convictions and single sentences being po- imposed on those. But I think that takes away the, the analysis that the Court uh, used in reaching the conclusion that it I don't understand why it's happenstance. He's required to do it under the statute. I, I, I didn't quite understand that. Well, I, you said it's only happenstance. He has to do it under the statute, and he makes the finding. No, I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that I think the Oregon Supreme Court viewed the fact that, that, that so far in this Court's cases, you had only been dealing with a single offense and a single sentence as, as not um, foreclosing the possibility that there would be a different statutory maximum when you have multiple sentences being imposed for multiple convictions. Um, and so the Supreme Court, I think, treated it what, it, what I was saying was simply as happenstance, that that had been the, the nature of the cases that this Court had decided, but then drew from this Court's opinions and from the discussion about punishment uh, a broader meaning that somehow the jury must be involved in any factual determination that relates to the overall quantum of punishment for multiple sentences being imposed. Well, didn't, didn't we furnish the premise for that broader reasoning? Because um, we, we pointed out that the traditional role of the jury was standing, in effect, as the buffer between the power of the state and the individual. And our concern in the Apprendi cases was uh, that the concept of, 
uh, of elements was being manipulated uh, in such a way that the jury no longer stood in that, that, in effect, that buffer position. And the, I guess the question here would be, uh, is there, is there room for, in effect, for manipulation uh, by the law uh, in, in, in the consecutive sentencing scheme or potential consecutive sentencing schemes so that the jury, in effect, loses control over the length, the ultimate length of time that an individual is going to serve? What, what, what is your response to that? That the jury does not lose anything that the jury historically had within its No, but isn't the problem with that argument the problem that Justice Scalia raised a moment ago? Uh, uh, where, uh, you, you could have made the same argument uh, with respect to a mandatory state guideline, but nonetheless, the change in the law uh, brought to, to bear on, on the new law an old concept. Uh, and this is a change in the law, to be sure. I agree with you. Historically, uh, the, the, the judges, once consecutive sentencing came, came in at all, they were free to, in effect, do what they wanted to, subject to some kind of a rule of reason. But we've got to apply the, the Apprendi concept and, and the, the, the concern of the jury trial right to this new situation. So I don't think it's an answer to say, well, the judges never had uh, uh, such, a, such a power. But there's something different here in terms of looking back on, on history and what we have presently compared to when you're looking at an, the offense-specific sentence associated with a specific conviction. Because the changes in practice there had the effect of taking away the ability to find an element or something that was the equivalent of an element, of removing that from the jury. And historically, that's clearly what the jury's job was, to stand in in, as a buffer between the defendant and the government. So I, I gather from your argument that, that uh, you, would, you would be taking the other side and you would be saying that it has to go to the jury if instead of being a statute that applies to concurrent or, uh, sentences from various crimes, there was added to a particular crime. If this crime was uh, committed with the use of a gun, uh, any sentence imposed shall not run concurrently, but shall run consecutively with any other sentence uh, arising out of the same uh, occurrence. I think there, there it's attached to a particular crime. You really think that we should have a different result in that case from this one? No, Your Honor, I don't. Although I think that makes it a, a more difficult situation to try to analyze because there it is, it is focused on a specific sentence for a specific offense. But what is different is it still goes to not adding to the penalty for that sentence, but adding to how you're going to administer multiple sentences. And the history here is very different because what we have is, even though there wasn't a statute, um, for when the framers would have, have, have looked at this issue, the issue did exist. Judges did make the determination about how multiple sentences would be administered. And what they would have considered would have been a wide array of facts um, and, and without really limitation other than the... But the you, you could say the same thing about, about the length of the sentence. It was up to them, and uh, they considered a wide array of facts. So what? Actually, you said an apprendi once... Once you try to narrow it by law, 
and say they can't do more than this, once you do that, that fact has to be found by the jury. And, and that's what's going on here. But I think what's different is that the history at issue and underlying Apprendi actually wasn't that the judge could simply uh, make non-jury fact-finding and expand the sentence beyond what the sentence was that was associated with the jury's verdict. That, in fact, that was the problem, because once there was additional fact-finding that permitted the judge to add to the penalty, that that had changed by taking something away from what the jury's role was. And so here, we don't have that same sort of situation. I mean, I think that the, that was exactly the argument this Court has rejected in the, the cases um, of, of where states and others have, have attempted to suggest that historically judges were able to do this, and so it shouldn't matter now as we have changes. But the Court rejected those arguments to say that, no, because the sentencing practices have taken something away from the jury, that is why we have the Sixth Amendment violation. So if in this circumstance we, we have constrained judicial power, and clearly that's what this statute does, is it tells the judge that instead of being able to make this determination based on this wide array of factual considerations, the judge now is limited in what the judge must consider to, to then exercise discretion in administering these sentences. But all of that is legislative restraint of judicial power without touching in any way on the jury's historic role in, in how to deal with these multiple But elections. another way to — am I right? And I just want to get the facts right. Um, am I right? You did historical research. And if you start with Apprendi, we can go all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar, and you haven't found a single case ever where it was a jury rather than a judge that made this uh, question of, of how you put together sentences for two separate crimes committed on the same occasion. Is that I, right, or is it an overstatement? It is an overstatement only in the sense that I did not go back as far as I Nebuchadnezzar. I didn't say how far you went back. I said as but, far as you went back. As far as I went I don't back. know what Nebuchadnezzar found. But I take it you did look to see what was true at the time of the writing of the Constitution. Yes, Your Honor. And at the time of the writing of the Constitution, which sometimes some of us feel is relevant, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in that instance, uh, they did have the judge, not the jury, decide how to create a total sentence where the person had committed two crimes on the same occasion. Yes, exactly. And that difference in terms of the history of showing that this was a judicial determination, that, and now that the fact-finding — You could say the same in Apprendi. It was a judicial determination how much of a sentence you were going to get. From 10 years to life, it wasn't up to the jury. It was up to the judge. But what and yet you- when you constrain the judge — and you say, Judge, you cannot give more than 20 years unless the crime was committed with a, with a gun, we said suddenly that that matter can no longer be left to the judge. It's a matter of law, and the fact must be found by the jury. And I don't see any difference here. I mean, in both cases, it was traditionally done by judges. But what this Court focused on with the Apprendi rule is that although judges made decisions about sentencing within a range of possible sentence, what judges could not do was to find additional facts that were the functional equivalent of an element of a greater offense. And that's what was happening with those new sentencing But we defined, in effect, what was the functional element of a greater offense in terms of the the power, the capacity 
of the judge to increase the sentence beyond the range that would have been — that would have established the maximum in the absence of that fact-finding, right? Correct. All right. And aren't we in exactly the same position here? Because the defendant here can correctly say, I cannot be sentenced to the more onerous — under a more onerous scheme of consecutive sentencing unless some fact is found which has not been found by the jury in coming to verdicts of guilty in any of these crimes. A further fact must be found to expose me to the heavier penalty. And that is exactly the same uh, as the situation in Apprendi with one possible exception. And that is, do you accept, as I thought you did, the proposition that consecutive sentencing is the heavier penalty uh, or is a more onerous sentencing alternative? If you accept that, I don't see how you escape the analogy with Apprendi. Your Honor, I do not accept that it is a, an enhanced penalty for any of the specific convictions. Everybody agrees. And the Oregon If you have a choice between uh, two uh, concurrent sentences and two consecutive sentences, you know which one you're going to choose. So we, we know what is the heaviest sentence or the heaviest sentencing option. It does have certainly a harsher effect on the defendant than serving each of the sentences uh, beginning at the same time. But I think the same could be said in terms of mandatory minimum sentences and the fact-finding required for those. We obviously have cases where a defendant facing a mandatory minimum sentence is going to be confronted with a harsher sentence than he would face without that additional fact. But the mandatory minimum is at least within the range of sentencing possibilities that the judge could impose anyway without any further fact-finding by the jury. And depending on how you view this in terms of if you're looking at it with an offense-specific frame. Each sentence imposed for each of the six convictions is also within the range of what the judge can impose. This additional piece of when those sentences begin does not take away from the jury's role. It does limit what the judge could otherwise have done, and it does that limitation by requiring fact-finding. What about the other? What about the Restitution, forfeiture, taking a child and having him tried as an adult. Uh, what about uh, uh, probation? Uh, what about uh, 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 alternative drug programs? Uh, what about uh, you know, diversion? Uh, I mean, I can think of five or six where there might be a factual finding necessary to proceed uh, to a situation where the total amount of punishment is greater rather than less. Yes, Your Honor, and we're now litigating some of those very questions in light of the Oregon Supreme Court decision about what is the scope when you look beyond the specific sentence of in, imposed for a specific conviction and look at this greater quantum of punishment. It's a lot easier to limit it to sentence than it is to limit it to uh, sentence for a particular conviction as opposed to sentence for the whole ball of wax, all of the all of the horribles that Justice Breyer uh, proposes would would be. Uh, overcome if, if you just adopted a rule that only applies to sentences? Although, Your Honor, some of these downstream decisions that are made, again, by non-jury fact-finding do affect what the defendant's period of incarceration is going to be. And doesn't the sentencing, doesn't federal law define a sentence to include restitution, to include what is the equivalent of probation? I mean, there's a broad definition of the word sentence in the law, which includes some of the things that I mentioned, though not all. 
Yes, Your Honor, and the same is true for Oregon, that the sentence imposed, and if you, uh, the, the judgments are set out in the joint appendix in this case that set out each of the sentences imposed for each of the six convictions, and you'll see that there are a number of things in addition to the term of incarceration that are a part of that sentence being imposed. May I ask you a question that may seem totally irrelevant? Do you think our decision in McMillan against Pennsylvania was correctly decided? Um. <laughs> it seems to me under your reasoning, your case, you might say that case was wrong. And I think it was wrong. I'll be perfectly candid to say so. I think it was a very important decision. No, Your Honor, I don't think that it is necessary to say that that decision is wrong to be consistent with the position I'm asserting here or the decision in Harris, because there the court made a distinction between what the jury traditionally would have been been doing and determined that 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 jury role was limited to deciding facts that increased only the the maximum penalty that the defendant faced. And so fact-finding tied to imposing a mandatory minimum sentence is different. I understand, but it seems to me in the old common law tradition, if you're following sort of the reasoning of the cases you relied on, McMillan really should have come out the other way because the jury normally would be finding the fact that would allow uh, the minimum, to, the maximum to go up, or the minimum—I forget which it was there. Yeah. Minimum. Yeah. And and what I have done is to start with the proposition that we have in place uh, the Apprendi rule as it's been construed in McMillan and in Harris, uh, but that this is a a very different extension of that rule beyond anything that this court has addressed in these cases. Uh, and it's an extension that doesn't have the same historic support that the Apprendi rule has. Uh, so I don't think that this Court needs to, certainly this Court doesn't need to consider uh, what impact this would have, except for, I think, in accepting the Oregon Supreme Court holding. That, to me, does raise questions about the ongoing validity of McMillan and Harris. Uh, and, and again, there are ways that you could certainly distinguish that and retain those. But what it does is to focus more on the jury as fact-finder, instead of focusing on what the jury's historic role was and the Sixth Amendment as a reservation of the power that the jury had, not somehow giving the jury additional power beyond what it had whenever fact-finding is involved that is, is related to a defendant's aggregate punishment. And, of course, it's part of your position that historically sentences were always consecutive, if you go way back. Well, Your Honor, in the older cases, we actually do find that they were there was discretion for the judge to have the sentences be served concurrently. It was viewed as, in some ways, uh, not giving full effect to the jury's verdict of finding the defendant guilty for multiple offenses, which consecutive sentencing did give full effect to that verdict. Uh, and so it was in the nature, really, of a mitigation that the judge could do to uh, lessen the severity of the punishment based on certain uh, facts that the judge would consider and then in simply in exercising the judge's discretion. But what's important here, I think, is that it was clearly something for the judge to decide. Once there were the multiple convictions, the jury's role was at an end, and it was then up to the judge to make the determination about how to administer those multiple sentences. And so long as we're not changing the jury's role in establishing that sentence for each of the, the six convictions in this case, then we have not removed from the jury anything that would have been incorporated within the Sixth Amendment. This, what this happens is, with uh, 
sentences from multiple states. I mean, I, you commit the crime in state A, you flee. Uh, you're then tried and found guilty of a second crime in state B. Um, I, I, let's assume uh, that the uh, uh, judge in state B has considerable discretion as whether he's going to have impose the sentence in B or send back to A, and that he knows that A is going to be concurrent. Uh, under the theory of the case advocated by the respondents, uh, do you think that a jury trial would, or some sort of finding would be required? I think that if the, the law required that the sentences be concurrent unless additional fact-finding were made, then under the, the rule announced by the Oregon Supreme Court and advocated by respondents, that question would have to then go to the jury, even if it arises in basically in separate proceedings. So as you're sentencing in that separate second proceeding, it would still be a jury question uh, whether the, those facts were, were there that would allow the judge to impose a consecutive sentence. The Oregon statute um, treats that a little bit differently. It appears to give the judge discretion when there is a previously imposed judgment. Other states do it differently, though, and do require fact-finding even in those circumstances when there's been a judgment imposed in an entirely separate proceeding. And if I could reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Lennett. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents yet another application of the Bright Line Rule from Apprendi. Oregon law entitles a criminal defendant to a concurrent sentence for each offense unless certain facts are found. <coughs> Here, for three offenses, a judge found those facts and imposed the greater penalty of a consecutive sentence. That violated defendants, uh, or the Sixth Amendment jury trial guarantee that the judge's authority to impose criminal punishment must be limited by the facts solely found by the jury. Mr. Lana, there's, there's one significant difference, um, I think, between the Apprendi, it doesn't matter whether the state labels something a sentencing factor or an element. Every one of those questions that are going to determine the maximum length of sentence has to go to a jury under Apprendi. But when it comes to uh, consecutive versus concurrent, Perfectly okay if a state says our main rule is consecutive, but the judge, if there are certain mitigating factors, can make it concurrent. Or leave the total thing to the discretion of the judge. And if we're looking at it from the point of view of a defendant, the state says, well, we're not going to make it totally discretionary because we want to be more defendant-friendly than is that we're putting certain restraints on the judge. So it seems, what seems odd to me about this case is the Sixth Amendment is supposed to protect the defendant's right. And here's a state saying, we want to give the defendant more of a right. And he can say, that's unconstitutional, but if you gave me less of a right, it would be perfectly constitutional. It's that enigma that I think is very disturbing about this case. Well, Two points on that. One of them is that historically, the jury trial, the jury who found a verdict of guilt, that in itself authorized the potential penalty of receiving a consecutive sentence. Oregon has made a different policy choice here, 
And to understand the full backdrop of it, perhaps the context that before this Oregon, uh, before Oregon had the statutory system in place, it had very liberal rules regarding merger. This was part of a series of uh, enactments in which anti-merger provisions were enacted, so defendants' criminal history would represent more accurately the number of convictions a jury had found them guilty of. Therefore, the defendant under in Oregon law must receive a separate sentence for each offense. So the increased number of sentences um, gave rise to the possibility of longer sentences through consecutive sentencing. Because in Oregon, not only does an offense give rise to a discrete sentence, but whether the, the sentence is concurrent or consecutive is an aspect of punishment for that offense. In Oregon, traditionally, if a burglar had broken into a house and while he was in the house commits a rape, Traditionally, in Oregon, that would not be considered two crimes. At a certain point in time, there were judicial rules in place regarding merger that may have resulted in the entry of one conviction. If you, can you cite an Oregon case which said a burglar who breaks in and commits rape is only guilty of one crime? I'd be happy to submit a, a letter and memorandum by the end of the day to do so. Mr. Lennett, in, in connection with Justice uh, Ginsburg's question, do you think that Apprendi would apply differently to a statute which, instead of imposing a higher penalty for a crime committed with a firearm, said that the penalty will be 30 years for burglary unless the defendant did not commit the crime with a firearm, in which case it will be 15 years. Do you think... If the, if the statute were framed that way, that Apprendi would not apply and we would leave it to the judge whether a firearm had been used or not? I certainly think it would raise an issue about whether the statute, it created an issue of statutory interpretation, of course, and if the state was merely shifting a burden of a fact to the defendant to disprove, I think that that would run into problems with this court's due process uh, case law. Um, it, oh, I mean, regardless it, of who proves it, I mean, the issue is can it be left to the judge to decide whether uh, the, the beneficent determination that he did not use a firearm could be left to the judge instead of uh, sending it to the jury? I think it would be very likely if this Court looked at the State's interpretation of the statute and found that the, that the judge had no authority to impose the greater sentence, no, I, I don't see a dime's worth of difference between that and Apprendi. How are you going to prove this? I mean, I'm always curious that the defense bar seems to want uh, stricter and stricter rules here, and I have a hard time figuring out why. If you have an actual case and you have to go to trial, are you prepared to put on all the evidence that although you want to say your client did neither of these things, that if he did do them, in fact, they were uh, uh, just one thing and weren't separate things? I mean, are you prepared to go into all that detail in front of the jury? Well, again, I think that there would be a question about whether that would be proper, if that would be, in fact, shifting an element over to the defendant to disprove. I think that that would create an issue. Are you saying that the standard that they use here for a separate sentencing, that it has to be a separate crime and so forth, has to go to the jury? Yes, sir. Okay. So I wonder if you're prepared to put all those facts before the jury, say, in a case where you want to say that it wasn't my defendant who did. Well, actually, Your Honor, a, a decision affirming the Oregon Supreme Court at this point would have very little impact in Oregon. 
In response to Blakely, the Oregon legislature enacted a statutory scheme that gave facts that enhance a sentence, uh, gave is a procedure by which they go to the jury, and it's either uh, in a bifurcated proceeding, if it's something about the offender. That, that, that was proposed to Juror Booker Fanfan as well. Adopted, right? I mean, that was what the dissenters in in Booker Fanfan would have. Uh, yes, correct, Your Honor. You're, yes, saying, you're saying there has to be a bifurcated proceeding. In many instances, just based on the guideline sentences that are in place, that is there historical evidence that bifurcated proceedings were required before appending? No, but I think that this is just a development of changing legislative choices on identifying facts. I think Apprendi articulated the functional test to determine the scope of the jury trial guarantee when the state attempts to relegate a fact to the judge rather than a jury. Could I get back to a question Justice Scalia asked about Apprendi? Is it it your position that if the offense based on all facts found by a jury, carried a maximum sentence of 30 years, but there was a provision that the judge could determine that if a firearm was not used in the offense, he would lower it to to 10 years. Would that pose a problem under Apprendi? And the Apprendi, I'm I'm not sure that, that, I mean, it's it's a question of whether all the facts that have been found by the by the jury, authorize the maximum punishment. So if well, then it does. All the facts authorize a punishment of 30 years. And if there's going to be a reduction, that's for the judge. But I would suppose that's not the problem. We didn't interpose jury between the defendant and the state with respect to every element, but only those elements that increase the punishment. Well, the potential penalty that defendant faces. And I think that uh, if, the, if the penalty of, of whether a gun is pre- or whether a gun is not present uh, assuming that that would be enacted by uh, a legislature. I, I think that as long as, I mean, the core question, Anna Paridi, has been, is the judge imposing a penalty within the range authorized by the jury's verdict? The core, the core question is, is the defendant entitled, entitled to get no more than a certain penalty if a particular fact is found? Yes, Your Honor. And, and the answer would be, yes, he's entitled if the fact is found that he didn't use a gun to get a lesser penalty. And once you bring in the legal entitlement, as I understand Apprendi, it means it it has to be found by the jury. Yes, Your Honor. In addition, it must be true, too, that the defendant is entitled not to pay restitution if the facts show that there was no money taken. uh, And you needn't, uh, by the way, convict the person. You can convict them without finding that. So the same would be true of restitution. We would have another jury to decide restitution, another thing that's never been done. Is that right? Well, if only because the legislative scheme in place doesn't give the court authority to impose restitution based solely on the jury's verdict. Nope. Couldn't impose restitution without making a finding as to how much money was taken. Uh, I, don't, I don't, I can't imagine. The Oregon appellate courts have decided otherwise on a you can, well, all right. issue. Federal courts have not, and I guess the same rule would apply. Or what about forfeiture of a car used in the drug? Uh, again, forfeiture, I guess, would take place uh, with another jury uh, being impaneled to try the question of whether there was a car. Is that right? If, if it was a fact that was necessary for the punishment, I think that falls from the bright line rule of Apprendi. 
Although in Apprendi there was a concern about elements being shifted from — Maybe not. Maybe it would just be uh, an in-rem proceeding. What about the — what about the proceeding? What about the determination that a person who is going to trial goes to a, a, an adult court rather than a um, juvenile court? The difference being uh, the, the extent of the punishments. You are not entitled — you a complete defense to the punishments that they could impose. You see where I'm going? I, I believe in that I'm instance. Sure which I, of these things would actually follow from your rule and which would I think legislatively that the, the general statutes would set the maximum penalty as being punished as an adult, and the uh, juvenile system would be a different type of system. Well, but they'll a, say a no one penalty. can get this lower punishment for the juvenile system unless the person is indeed a juvenile. Who well, makes that factual finding? Well, Your Honor, the bright-line rule of Apprendi as it applies to sentencing, in this case, the question of what the, ju- what the judge can impose in the proceeding that was initiated. Well, if we are going to depart from what the framers did, in fact, foresee in this kind of case, and we do accept Apprendi as something different from what they did apply, does that require us to depart as well? in all these other cases which have the kinds of differences that you've listened to. Well, I believe that this Court already has, for instance, in Ring, under common law, a defendant who committed a capital offense was subject to the death penalty, and it was only upon, you know, and then the trial court would get to exercise discretion to whether to impose it. The Arizona legislature identified those facts and said we are not trying to shift elements to the jury. These were never questions for the jury, but rather... We are only merely trying to guide the court's discretion. May I ask you a, a rather, rather broad question? <clears throat> yes, sir. In Apprendi, the opinions were rather lengthy and discussed precedents at great length. Justice Thomas's opinion was quite scholarly, and I, I discussed a lot of old cases. If this case that we have today had arisen before Apprendi was decided, what case would you have supporting your position? I believe I would have Jones versus United States, and I think that it would be necessary. Jones, where the Jones versus United States, where this court interpreted as a matter of constitutional doubt that a fact was an element. What have arisen before Jones? Then I think that it would uh, that this court, if it engaged in the historical analysis, it did, and see that yes. And the historical analysis would include citation to what cases? I believe the cases that were. That were cited in a, I don't think the cases All the would case change. All the cases dealt with elements of the crime and that sort of thing. Yes, but this court looked at that practice and decided that what was not at issue was that the legislatively identified elements are being found by the jury. Rather, the underlying concern, the core concern, the tradition that this court thought that the framers wanted to enshrine in the Sixth Amendment is that the judge's authority to punish is both created and limited by the factual findings of the jury. What if uh, under the law, the judge upon sentencing is supposed to make a determination of where the defendant should be sent, which facility, based on a determination of which one has the most room. Is that, is that a determination that has to be made by the jury? I believe that, that that can be distinguished because it would be a determination not on, based on punishment and not to impose a punishment on defendant. However, if it Even was, if one was, you know, the most horrendous prison in, in history, and the other was one of the uh, country club? No, I, I believe this Court has repeatedly stated in, in, 
and downstream like decisions after a conviction has been entered that when someone's been convicted of an offense and sentenced to incarceration by uh, executive agency, you're subject to the policies of that agency, and there may be certain due process. Yeah, but here, under my hypothetical, it's something the judge puts in the sentence. If it's, it is, it's like you've got to, you know, make restitution. You're not eligible for parole. You're going to this place rather than that place. Well, this court has identified a bright line rule that it's not the it's not the particular of the fact whether it would be something that would be historically found by the jury, but rather if the fact functions to increase punishment. I think I have trouble with the hypothetical in seeing that the different uh, the different classification to send to a different institution is is intended to be in punishment and not within the uh, the operations of the of the. Uh, incarceration institution that are the Mr. overall. Mr. Lynette, if we agree with your position, and let's say you are engaged by the Oregon legislature and they say to you, we don't want to make this just leave the judge's discretion alone. What, what can we do to achieve constitutional constitutionally what we were trying to achieve. That is to say, concurrent is the main rule, but that is, we, we have to leave it to the judge's discretion, but we want to rein in that discretion so that you don't have arbitrary differences going from one judge to another. They, they, want, they want to say, yeah, we wanted this to be discretionary with the judge, but we want to install certain controls so that the trial judges will be operating more or less uniformly. How could they do that constitutionally? I, I think they could do as they they are doing since Oregon the ICE was decided, and that is that juries are finding those facts, and then a, a trial court does not have to in, impose the consecutive sentence. Rather, uh, the juries are, are that's what's going on now. The juries are as part of the. Trial of guilt? Uh, or in a bifurcated proceeding, much the way that aggravating factors under Oregon's guideline systems are being handled in the wake of but, this Well, which is it? Do they do it in the guilt trial, or is that up to the judge? It, it's, it falls into a division of what is defined as offense-related or offender-related factors. I think that these would, would come, out, come in the offense-related and probably be in the main trial. And where, where a defense attorney might not want all well, that stuff to come out. Well, this court has observed repeatedly that that the right for a jury trial is one that can be waived, and so defendants have the opportunity to not exercise those rights. This is just that it's a right for the defendant, but it's also the constitutional role this this court has identified as being the jury's role in our system. It it both. Uh, authorizes, creates the author authority to impose punishment, also sets the maximum. What if the, uh, what if the rule were that all sentences should be concurrent unless the defendant has been convicted of a prior federal offense and then the sentence runs consecutively to the federal sentence? Well, if, if that was, if the Almendares Torres prior conviction exception is a Sixth Amendment issue, which this court has stated that it is, then I believe that, um, that there would not be required a jury finding, much like if the legislature identified facts that would be reflected in the jury's verdict or reverted back to the common law rule, which gave the trial court authority to impose a consecutive sentence merely on the basis that there was a conviction. 
I think that uh, the facts identified by the Oregon legislature here are quite different than what would qualify as the Almodora's Torres exception. That exception, um, to the, the basis that it has, it can be rationalized consistent with the rule is that a fact of a prior conviction has already been established in accordance with the defendant's Sixth Amendment rights. These are facts about the offense for which a consecutive sentence is contemplated. So these are facts about the offense that is being litigated at that moment. And Oregon legislature has predicated the greater penalty of a consecutive sentence on those facts. And Prindy instructs that when the legislature does so, defendant has a right to have a jury find that fact beyond a reasonable doubt before the state can rely on it to impose that greater penalty. Mr. Leonard, one of the, or perhaps the driving force behind uh, Apprendi was the fear of, um, uh, of, of abuse by a combination of the charging power and, and the, the sentencing power. What abuse do you see uh, if, if you lose this case? What potential abuse? Well, I, th- I think that it would send a message to legislatures that they can enact statutory schemes that have uh, that allow for many instances where consecutive sentences are authorized based on facts, and that those facts um, do not implicate the Apprendi role, and therefore is a but way they, to they would, set fact, maximum. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I didn't mean to what set maximum punishment based on consecutiveness rather than as they were doing under the guideline system by allowing a range and requiring facts to exceed that range. They 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 would do by consecutive sentencing the same sort of thing that they were trying to do, or some legislatures, Congress was trying to do, uh, by the sentencing factors. I, I believe it at least raises the possibility, I guess. Is there any room for harmless error here? I mean, it seems to me patently obvious that both of these statutory conditions were fully satisfied. It was within the discretion, which put it within the discretion of the judge. Well, I think this Court should not find that this error is harmless beyond reasonable doubt for several reasons. First, the State has the burden to prove that it's uh, harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. It did not attempt to do so before the Oregon courts, the appellate courts. It has not done so uh, before this court. I think that the Oregon Supreme Court necessarily concluded that this error was... I mean, is there any doubt that he wanted to commit an offense twice? <laughs> Why? Well, I think that raises an issue of statutory interpretation. I think that that is one of the issues... The statutory interpretation questions aren't for the jury. Um, you're right, Your Honor, but they are ones for the Oregon Supreme Court in this instance. And the Oregon Supreme Court merely concluded that the findings that the jury found did not did not um, establish the factual predicate to impose consecutive sentences. However, they did not go into a comprehensive analysis of what precisely those facts are. And, in fact, the state, the petitioner here, is activating litigating the meaning of the statutory provisions at this point. So it really is unclear what precisely are the facts meant by this, by the statutory terms. So I think it would put this court in a position to interpret the state statute in the first instance and disagree with the Oregon Supreme Court's implicit conclusion because it's under a state constitutional requirement and also this court's requirement that it cannot reverse a lower court unless it concludes that an error is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. It held as far as the state constitution went, this was fine. It was only the federal constitution that stopped the legislature from doing this. Yes, I would acknowledge that there is no analysis in the written decision, and that is part of the problem because it didn't identify the particular facts and, and conduct a harmless error analysis for the benefit of this court. However, the court heard this case with a in a consolidated argument with State versus Bray, in which it did address the state's uh, harmless error uh, argument and 
recognized that in Washington, Requinco, this court had said that Apprendi are subject to harmless error analysis. So I think necessary in the Oregon Supreme Court reversing the lower court's decision is its conclusion that this error was not harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. And subsequent to uh, this, this case, the Oregon Supreme Court decided State versus Hagberg, and I have a citation for that if, if you like. It's, and in that it identifies, uh, it addresses the state's harmless error question. Sorry, the citation is 345-OR-161, and that's uh, Regional Reporter uh, 190-P3D-1209. And in that case, we had sexual offenses arising out of the same general factual scenario where a young victim testified that she was abused in two different rooms on two different days, and the Oregon Supreme Court said there is no factual default in our uh, consecutive sentencing system the, the jury was not decided that this occurred on during the same criminal episode or during a separate criminal episode. And in light of the, the vague testimony by the victim, it could not conclude that a jury would have found that. So I believe that, the, that to the extent that the Oregon Supreme Court has analyzed the statute, that I think that it, would, it, it backs up the conclusion that it found this not to be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. One, one way of... If you're right about the application of Apprendi, the uh, Oregon legislature could say that the main rule is we leave it to the judge's discretion. However, before the judge makes the sentence consecutive, the judge should take account of the following factors. That would be okay. I believe so. If that if that kind of statutory provision was interpreted like you're suggesting that the court has authority based solely on the jury's verdict and is merely exercising its discretion, and there's no requisite fact finding or the even requirement to find a fact to impose a consecutive sentence, then I think that it wouldn't raise an Apprendi issue. No, no entitlement to a lesser sentence. No entitlement to a lesser sentence, Your Honor. Thank you. I mean, even if it's subject to judicial review for abuse of discretion. I, I believe so. I think that uh, this court has. That doesn't give you an entitlement to that, uh, to the exercise of discretion that isn't abused. Not an entitlement that's based solely on the facts found by the jury's verdict. I don't believe it would. Ultimately, uh, this case is just an application of the Apprendi rule. Uh, the state asked this court to replace that bright line functional rule with some yet unidentified criteria for identifying constitutionally protected elements. And it, it hasn't really offered this court with, with any suggestion of what those constitutionally protected elements are, except to say that the facts at issue in this statute are not those. Um, at a minimum, the state asked for an exception to the Apprendi rule based on historical reasoning about that an, an allegation that this was only meant to uh, to control the discretion of the sentencing court and it didn't shift any elements. And, and that kind of argument was explicitly rejected in, in Bring, Blakely, Booker, and Cunningham. Um, the Oregon legislature authorized consecutive sentence as a greater penalty only for offenses committed under certain factual circumstances. Those facts, not the jury, uh, not found by the jury, increased defendant's penalty from seven and a half years to over 28 years. Affirming the decision below would adhere to the bright line rule of Apprendi, and it would preserve the jury's role in finding each fact that authorizes the maximum punishment. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, uh, oh. Don't, don't oh, look up the case that I mentioned on my account.
<laughs> I'm thinking about it. That's not going to make a difference. Thank you, Madam. Ms. Williams, you have four minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. What the state is advocating for here is not an abandonment or a modification of the Apprendi rule, but a limitation of the Apprendi rule to the cases in which the, the circumstances in which this court has applied it so far. The Apprendi rule has been applied as a bright line test for deciding when a sentence for a specific conviction has, satisfies the Sixth Amendment. And the way it operates is the rule itself tells us what are the necessary facts that the jury must find. And so there doesn't need to be any new rule to determine what are those constitutionally protected facts. The Apprendi rule does that for us by saying that any fact that exposes a defendant in a particular conviction and sentence to a greater penalty based on, that, based on a fact that the jury has not found is the functional equivalent of an element if we had looked historically at what the jury's role was. And so, therefore, that additional fact-finding, if it exposes the defendant to a, a longer penalty, a greater penalty for a specific conviction, it must be found by the jury. And that's how the Court has applied the rule to this point. So all we're asking is that the Court clarify that that is the full scope of the Apprendi rule. And the reason for that is, again, going back to what this Court said in Blakely, that the Sixth Amendment is only a reservation of jury power. And here what we have is something that is entirely a judicial determination, historically has always been a judicial determination, and the only overlay we now have is a legislative effort to regulate that judicial authority through the mechanism of requiring fact-finding. It's something that the legislature often does, is to try to regulate judicial discretion by requiring fact-finding and by limiting the kinds of facts the judge may consider. And that's what is being done in this case without removing anything from the purview of the jury. And so we would ask that this Court reverse the Oregon Supreme Court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.